everybody. I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit, The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something not through no fault of our own or through our own making we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace, and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. It's a beautiful day in paradise, and I love to say that on the Stand Up and Speak Up show because today it is sunny in South Florida. In spite of uh, getting close to Christmas, it is rather chilly here today. It's about 58 degrees, and I can hear my friends in Canada just hooting it up because this is not cold. But it is beautiful, and I'm so grateful to have my special guest here today because she called me up yesterday, and she said, I'm thinking I caught a cold, and I'm not going to be able to talk. And I was like, then we'll just manifest good feelings. And I woke up this morning saying, please talk, please talk, please talk. Because it took me about two weeks to get over my strep. But uh, I'd like to welcome my special guest, Ms. CCS Bew. Are you there? I am here, and thank you so much for inviting me on your show. This is just a wonderful way to start off the Christmas season, so thank you. My pleasure. And, Cece, I'm just smiling. I'm looking at your picture, and I'm looking at a couple of things that we've done together. You are one of my guests that I do know. I have met in person. We've done things together and have had so much fun. I put in uh, something yesterday that we were sisters by other misters, and I love that Mm -hmm. phrase because there are just some people in your lives that you meet and you just have this instant bond. You look nothing alike. You sound nothing alike. You're not alike at all on the outside, but on the inside, just buddies. So... And we are Mutt and Jeff buddies. I'm All right, sure. right. You, you have one of those height-challenging things that I like to say. But You know, yeah, that, that is so true. But you know what? We may not look anything alike, but we have had so many experiences that are similar that, you know, we could have almost been twins. So, yeah, we are sisters from another mister. We are, and I always hear that small small packages or what was it? Great things come in small packages, dynamite and something else. Cece. Diamonds. Dynamite and diamonds. Diamonds. Yeah, dynamite and diamonds. So you're my dynamite diamond friend. So Cece, thank, so, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. We're going to have such a fun time, and you're going to keep your voice, and so am I. And we're going to start off, Miss Cece. I always do this with my guests. I like to go back in time. We're going back to your childhood, and it was, it was a good childhood. So can you kind of tell us where you grew up, what your family was like, and what you loved to do as a kid? All right. So my childhood was absolutely amazing. I 
was born and raised in London. My dad was an electrical engineer at the National Art Gallery in London, and my mother was a nurse. And I have three brothers. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. When my mother was working and my dad was babysitting us and had to go into work, he would take us to the National Art Gallery after it closed. And we had to take our shoes off so we didn't scuff up the floors. But my younger brother and I would get to play amongst all those amazing paintings and artifacts. And to this day, my brother is an amazing artist. He still lives in London. And I always say that's where I got my creative spirit from, you know, being in the National Art Gallery after closing. So that's how I grew up. That's a pretty special place. And you're, you say you have three brothers. Where do you fall in the mix? I am the second. Me too. So I, I have an older brother than myself and then two younger brothers. There you go. Okay. More similarities are chalking up here. So me too. <laughs> now, when you were young, did you, were you competitive with your brothers? Incredibly. <laughs> incredibly competitive. I am the shortest one in my family by far in our generation. So my mother has three, two sisters, and they each have nine kids. My dad has nine brothers and sisters, and they all have multiple kids. So I basically have 50 first cousins. <laughs> I'm the shortest one of them all. So I'm incredibly, incredibly competitive. Yes, wow. I am. I said it, and I'm not ashamed. Yes, <laughs> I'm in it to win it. Well, I found that with my brothers, I was, it was interesting being the second. I was a little more competitive athletically with the second one. And we're close. We're okay. very close now. Uh, but I had, I had, I had, a lot of friends. I had a lot of girlfriends. So my brothers were, were buddies. But I remember, um, and I think I've told this story before, that I, the one thing I remember about my oldest brother, we were down in our basement up in Vermont, and we were doing something. And my, we were all good marksmen, right? So we uh -huh. had a BB gun nearby. And for some reason, my brother shot me with the BB gun. And it's a story. It's a story in my mind, and I'm pretty sure it hit my rear end back then. Um, but it's just kind of funny. I would love to sit down with my brothers and say, "Do you remember that? Or do you remember the time when we we were there barefoot playing chicken with jackknives? Would not want my grandkids to be doing that. But boy, that was fun. We did that up in Vermont in the small towns, and you know, lived a mile out of town. So anyway, this is about you and your brothers. Did you ever have any experiences with your brothers that you might have done something silly that you didn't tell your parents about? Oh, plenty, plenty. <laughs> but the one that comes to mind was when we were teenagers, Bruce Lee was all the rave and kung fu fighting. <laughs> My brothers decided to play Bruce Lee with kitchen knives. Oh, and not once, but twice, two different occasions, they ended up in the hospital getting sketches because they were playing Kung Fu and Bruce Lee with the sharp kitchen knives. My mother was just, just 
beyond mad with us. So, yeah. Well, at least Don't they play didn't. kung fu with knives. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay, Miss Cece. So you had this idyllic childhood. You were living in London. Uh, when did you come to the States? I did not come here until I was about 16. Okay. Actually, no, no. I, I, was, I was closer to 17 just before my 18th birthday is when I came here. And what did you do when you got here? Were you in school or 18 years? I was finishing up my last year of high school. And I have to tell you that coming to New York City, while New York is a wonderful, wonderful place to experience, it was so different from anything that I had ever encountered. And I remember one day being incredibly miserable going into the city And there was a recruiter, Marine Corps recruiter, standing on the subway platform in his dress blues. And he said to me, come here, I have something to show you. Now, they say that God takes care of babies and fools. (laughs) And obviously I was not a baby, so I must have been a fool. But I actually went with him. And I took the abstab. The next day, the very next day, without ever going back home, I joined the Marine Corps. And I remember well, calling my mother. I remember calling my mother and saying, I've just signed up in the United States Marine Corps. I will see you when I see you. True story. True story. I'm speechless, but I totally get that you did that. Thank you for your service. Uh, when you, you did that, though... You were a British citizen, weren't you? Uh, yes, I was. How did you yes, get I in? Was. Being, being a U.S. citizen is not a requirement to be in, in, the, in the armed forces. Okay. You just, have to be, you just have to have a green card. Okay. Do they get you one, or did you have it before you got here? I had a green card before I came to this country. That's okay. how, I mean, I came to this country legally. And right. I did not get my U.S. citizenship until, ooh, probably another four or five years later. Okay. So you enlisted in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. did your two years, and then got out, and then what? No, actually, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I did 10 years. And then got out. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for your service. I have uh, my son and his wife are both Marine Corps officers, and uh, it's a great way of life. It's tough and tough for a, you'd say tough for a girl, but it was tough for everybody, especially boot camp. Uh, one, tell mm-hmm. us one story about you know what was the hardest thing you did at boot camp that you overcame. I remember one time they told me that if I didn't finish a run, that I wasn't going to graduate, and that was pretty tough for me because I, I am an, the ultimate city girl, you know, born and raised in London, lived in New York City, and then here I am in Paris Island, and they're telling me I have to run. And I was like, what about my hair? And another real, uh, oh, this is so memorable. When they had us go out, in the, out into the field, you know, we're sleeping in tents. I had never slept in a tent before. I had never done anything in the country. So 
or out in the woods camping, that kind of stuff. So it was a, that was a novel experience for me, not having a blow dryer and a curling iron. Yeah, the, the pretty novel experience for me. It just makes me laugh. I'm thinking of G.I. Jane, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. You see, I mean, I'm Air Force. Of all the services, the Marine Corps is probably the most difficult and so male-oriented. And back then, that was so true. And I can just see mm-hmm. this young girl coming off the subway, going with a, re- with a recruiter. Oh, my gosh. Bless your heart. And uh, that's when you didn't – that's the, probably the first time you said, nobody can tell me no. I'm not going to listen to no. <laughs> Correct, correct. And, you know, I do want to say, I do want to say thank you for your service, you know, and thank you for your family and for all they've done in serving our country. I I think that's that's really amazing, so thank you. Well, I appreciate that because my uh, my second one just got back from across the pond two days ago. And this time when he got home, I was so grateful that he was home. Moving on, you. you do the military, you're smart, you're working hard, you get out, and what happens? What happened from serving our country to your next chapter? Well, my, it, it wasn't quite such a smooth transition. <laughs> <laughs> All right, right never at the is. end of my, right, it never is, it was kind of bumpy. Right at the end of my military career, I met some friends. We had a conversation. They told me some stuff that they were doing. And I had been taking college classes at that point. Uh, math. Math was my, um, was my major. Mm-hmm. And they started telling me some stuff. And I was like, hmm, if you do X, Y, Z, you'll make more money. And they did it. Now, two things at that point I wish I had realized – I wish I had realized the power of my voice. I wish I had told them that what they were doing was illegal and that they should stop. But what I actually told them was how they could change a few things and make more money. Now, looking back, I realized had I told them to stop, they might have stopped. But they didn't. I didn't, and they didn't. And so we all ended up in prison for drug conspiracy. So you had some budding entrepreneurs that were heading in the wrong direction, but you didn't say stop. I didn't say stop. I didn't. And that that was my mistake. I, I said, well, if you do this, then you'll make more money. Okay, so that, that was the power of my voice back then. Absolutely, but what, I, was your, what was your gut saying to you? Why did you, you know what? It? You know what? My gut wasn't saying anything. I was just totally oblivious. Just, I just was not thinking. Yeah. All right? Really was not thinking. And so sometimes God has to put you in a place where you can actually hear him. And so I end up in prison. And not only, you know, going back to the uh, Private Benjamin uh, story that you were just saying before, I got to prison and I was like, oh, well, orange isn't my color. You know, um, I don't like bologna and cheese on white bread. Can I get, and next thing I know, 
I'm in solitary confinement, and I'm there for almost a year. You know, I, I heard that story, and I'm thinking, what did she do to get put into solitary? You were the prison princess, right? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, that was me. You know, I'm asking for curling irons and blow dryers, and, you know, I don't want to eat bologna and cheese sandwiches on white bread. You know, um, so I just thought, I don't know what I thought. I, I was absolutely not thinking at that time in my life. And so I ended up in solitary confinement for almost a year. And now looking back, I realized that God put me there so that I could listen and I could hear his voice. Well, I'm also and thinking know that maybe, means, you, maybe you were protected hmm? there too. I was protected. Oh, definitely protected. Cause From the population. Me, Right. I definitely was not, you know, could not have fought my way out of a paper bag, even though I was a Marine. But I really believed that I needed to come to know myself. I needed to hear God's voice because the idea that somebody could tell me that they were doing something illegal and I not say, stop, that's not right, is beyond me. Why didn't I tell them to stop? And I have been asked that question so many times. Why did I not tell them to stop? Mm. I don't know. I just was not thinking. Well, and you're young and impressionable. And, and, you know, a lot of kids at that age are thinking, well, first off, we're not going to get caught. And second off, mm -hmm. we're too smart for this. And, I mean, I have, a, I have a fellow that I've interviewed that actually escaped from prison. So he was always thinking, you know, he right, got caught right. and he ended up back in. But did you ever have a moment where you thought, I can get out of here? Never. It, I was on lockdown. I was so locked down that, no, there was, there was no escaping for me. There, okay. No. Uh, and so two years. And did you know you were going to get out at two years or was it just an, what no. was your sentence? Uh, you know what? It, once again, it's it, just by the grace of God, things just happened. Once I think people realized that I had been in solitary confinement for so long, then they just, you know, everybody started calling like that. Just while a lot of people are in that situation, it's not a good situation. If, if mentally, mentally. So by the grace of God, by the time they sentenced me, the sentence was two years. But then I only had like six months to go. So I was very blessed. But, you know, a lot of people ask me questions about prison. And honestly, I have forgotten more than I will ever remember about that period in my life. I always like to say my life really started over the day they let me out. Because at that point, I promised myself I would never go back. And tell that so story. So that's when my could, life really started. Tell that story of leaving because it was April Fool's Day, right? April Fool's, right? <laughs> oh, yes. And I'm, the guard opens the door and then says to me, you're being released. Let's go. And I'm like, no, pretty much, it's April Fool's. I don't feel like playing your game. And they're like, no, no, you've got to pack out. Let's go. 
And as I'm walking through the gate, the guard says to me, see you soon. Mm. And I just remember being so incensed and having an attitude and saying, no, no, I, I'm, I'm not coming back. What do you mean? And she went on to explain recidivism to me, which means the time it takes for an inmate to commit another crime and violate, violate their probation and come back, which is usually within a year. And instantly, I made up my mind, no, that was not going to be my story. And that's interesting that she said that because I recall one time with family experience with a probation officer and the first meeting, exact same thing came out of her, out of her mouth. And I was like, how could you say that to a child? How could you say that? You're setting them up for failure. And it turned out to be true, but I'm like, why, you know, talk about law of attraction, you get what, you, what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. Why would they want to say that? Why would they want you to come back other than it's, it's a power position for them? So you decided at that point, you're not going back. Nope. So what did you have to do at that point when you walked out those doors? Were, were there family there? Were there friends there? Who was there to support you? My mother, uh, my parents were there. My, and, and it's really funny because I, I love my brothers. I absolutely love them. But they had made up their minds that, no, they didn't want anything to do with me. And literally, they severed th those relationships. Cousins, they all, they were like, no, we cannot believe that you go from having this idyllic childhood with all the, you know, the normal, Norman Rockwell kind of lifestyle, and then you make such a, make a series of bad decisions and end up in prison. So some of my family to this day, still, they still do not talk to me. Mm. And that has been 25 years now. Uh, if, I, if they were to walk right in here in the room right now, I would not recognize them. They've had kids and grandkids whom I know nothing about. But my mother was there for me. So yeah. I really do appreciate that. And, you know, there's nothing like a mother's love. Amen to that. Um, <laughs> and it's such a shame because you, your story, what happened doesn't define you. You know, it, it changed your life. It's kind of like mine. changes your life, but it puts you on a different trajectory. And a lot of people don't like change and they don't understand change. And it gets a little judgmental. But from that point on, you are, this is the tough part, though, and getting out. And this is what you talk a lot about in your life today, is the challenge of, of getting a job, Cece. So what did you do when you walked out those doors? Wow. <laughs> when I was released back then, and they changed the rules all the time, but when I was released, you had two weeks to get a job or they violated your probation and you got sent back. So here it is. I've gone to one of the best schools in the country and I have to get a job and explain to people where I've been and tell this story. It was not easy. 
mm-hmm. I ended up getting a job as a server in a local breakfast establishment. I, if, and I mentioned, if I mentioned the name, you'd all know who they are, but they're very ex-offender friendly. I get this job. I'm serving breakfast. I'm, I'm not a meat eater. I'm not necessarily a vegan or a vegetarian. I just don't particularly like meat. I've been in solitary confinement. All of a sudden, I'm in this hustling, bustling breakfast restaurant on the weekends serving steaks. So it's total sensory overload for me. The, the people, the sounds, the smell of the meat. And I'm a server working for $2.15 an hour plus tips. Now, if that's not a private Benjamin moment, <laughs> there is not. And, you know, at the time it was very, very serious, but now it is just hilarious. I could write a movie script on this. In fact, I could do a, a Private Benjamin remake on that. It was, it's so hilariously funny now to think back on that. So, but that, back that then you're thinking, I've got to make this work, right? I've got to make this work. I can't go back. At one point, I thought to myself, it's just easier to go back. There you go. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. The outside makes it easier for you to want to go back. Yes, yes. So, how do you change that? I know you went on, and, and your story is, uh, I love the story about the, the photography. <laughs> Just briefly tell that story, because I want to move into what you're doing today. So, you're, we're, okay. you're, you're there with another server, and you're in this, I can just see you at one of the local, I know what, what place it was here, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, those folks from up north, who come down who have zero tolerance for anything are barking mm-hmm. at you and you're making two dollars and fifteen cents an hour. So what do you do, do, you do to get out of that? How do you get out of that? All right. So there's this other server and she is in love with this amazing guy and he asked her to marry him. And they've saved up and she comes to me and she goes, Cece, I don't have a lot of money, but would you please be my wedding photographer? Because everybody knew uh, photography was my hobby. And she said, would you please be my wedding photographer? I only have $500. And I remember laughing to myself thinking, if I do one wedding a week at $500, I'm making way more than I'm making as a surfer at $2.15 an hour. It was a no-brainer for me. I took $50. I went and got a business license and never looked back. That was my last day as, as being a server, by the way. I was going to ask that. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so you walked away. You started your own business. You're making good money and enjoying. So you turned your passion, which you learned as a child, goes back to dad in the art, the art gallery, uh-huh. um, turned your passion into a business, active business, and how did you get over the story, though, of what had happened? How, did, how could you move forward? Or, because now, is anybody asking you about where you've been? Or is that behind you? So that, that's the really interesting part. Um, 
nobody was asking me my story because at that point people just wanted wanted to know you know was i going to show up was i going to get the pictures that they needed was i going to deliver on time and so i went for years and then i was doing an event and sharon lecter was there and she's part of the rich dad poor dad team Mm -hmm. you met her at the same time at the same event in orlando and so we are she's telling something on stage and behind camera and I start laughing silently. I, at least I hope I was laughing silently. Mm-hmm. And she stops and she goes, look at that lady behind the camera. She is laughing so hard. She needs to step out from behind the camera. And immediately, all 300 people turn and look at me. And I was like, oh, my goodness. And then she asked me, what is your story? And I was like, oh, okay, all right. And so at that point, I started to have to learn how to, people wanted to know more about me. I just wasn't the photographer anymore who just showed up. They wanted to know, they wanted details. And so that's how I had to learn how to tell my story. And then I realized, that I was not the only person who had ever been to prison or who had ever made a mistake. And that was the beginning of a whole new chapter in my life. And I'm eternally grateful to Lecter for calling me out that day. It never would have happened had she not called me out. And I'm, I'm seeing you up there. And so when you, how did you feel when you first told the story in public? I was crying and boohooing and snotting. I was doing the ugly cry, the ultimate ugly cry, because at that point, the story just had to come out because I was doing enough public things that people wanted to know more. But here's the thing. I felt like an imposter because I had this secret that I wasn't telling anybody. And I really felt like I needed to tell my story. So, yeah, it was pretty painful. I remember that. Okay, and so I, I, anybody that's had something happen that has actually had to tell the story, been there, done that, um, the first time is very emotional. And did you, mm-hmm. in your case, did you feel empowered to tell it again? Or would you have preferred to have gotten back behind the camera and just been the woman behind the smile and stayed hidden? Oh, definitely, definitely. That was, yes, I wanted to be protected. I needed to be protected. I felt very vulnerable. But here's the thing, is that when you tell your story, it's almost like, I want to say, bacteria, that it cannot live out in the open. Once you shed light on it, it, it changes. And so the story then starts to take on healing properties. And so, believe it or not, you're not the only person who's going through what you're going through. There are other people that need to hear your story. They need to hear your voice. And once I started telling and saying that, hey, I had been to prison, 
all sorts of people came came up to me and they were like, wow, either they've been to prison or somebody in their family has been to prison. And that's when the healing started taking place for all of us. That That's the key, is when you realize that it's not just you, it's not about you. It happened to you, but it might have happened for you because there's a reason for you to move forward and be there for somebody else. Correct. So you realize at that point that this wasn't about you anymore. It, it was a stepping stone to your purpose. Okay. How Did you lose any friends, quote-unquote friends, out of that oh, when you started yes. picking up? Oh, absolutely. I remember talking about being vulnerable. So in the event world, in the event industry, you know, it's very common for you, if you're doing an event, you share a room with one of the other vendors, all right? And this particular vendor, she and me had been reasonably good friends. And when I came out with my story, went public, I remember her... It was a Saturday morning. I had just woken up, but I was laying in bed, you know, kind of in that twilight sleep. So I'm in my pajamas. I'm laying in the bed. And she goes out for a smoke and comes back in. And she stood at the foot of my bed and just blasted me. She was like, how could you? I have worked all my life to keep my children away from people like you. And she pointed her finger. And here you are, front and center in my life. Now, I I didn't know what to say. I couldn't form the thoughts of what to say. And honestly, I know I lost her friendship that day. And, and And I miss her. I really do miss her, but... Yeah, so I've had a lot of kind of situations like that. Yeah. Which, which is really interesting because I knew you before I knew the story. And when I heard the story, it was before you were coming up to do some, um, some, some headshots for me. When I heard the story on a podcast, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I need to really sit down with this woman because I was going through the same thing with, the, with my family members. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking, I need to hear her. If she could get through it, I need to know how. I need to. Ha- I need her to speak to you know my son and mm-hmm. to, to give. And it it changed the way I saw our relationship. So your story about photography and all that was great, but it was the story of reentry that I needed to hear. How does a family mm-hmm. help the the person, the child, the ex-offender, move on because it was so frustrating for me. The whole system was so frustrating. And when I heard your story and I, and I ended up getting your book uh, and reading about that, I'm like, she's got so much information that the rest of us need to hear. And it was, you, you got to get past the judgment and the, oh, it's not ever going to happen to me because I think your statistic is what one in, one in three Americans have a right. criminal record. Mhm. Mhm. 
and people don't want to hear that, but it is so true. And, and are you finding that as uh, as we get older, I'm, I'm like the, there is a younger generation that there are a lot of them that have records, and many of them are drug related, possession related. You know, they're not murderers, but they have a record. Mm -hmm. And that's changing, Cece. So we're going to move into what you're doing now. How are you helping educate businesses in hiring someone that has a record and not being scared of them? Because it could be a family member. Right, right. So going back to that statistic of one in three Americans has a criminal record. And people go, well, no, 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 nobody I know has a criminal record. And then I always ask them, have you sat back of a police car? And some of them go, yes. And I go, well, guess what? Then you've got a police record because they have to fill out paperwork. If they have to, to do the paperwork, then you've got a criminal record. So, of course, there are different levels of, you know, criminal records. But a criminal record, criminal record, and it can stop you from getting hired or volunteering at your kid's school or church, mm -hmm. it is public record that you have a criminal record. And so I, what I do is two parts. I definitely talk to HR managers, and I tell them that, you know, and that sometimes, you know, sometimes we just make a mistake. And sometimes it may be truancy why you have a criminal record or it may be drug related or something else but what they have to realize is that they can give people a second chance okay and most of us most of us are not um our crimes are not serious some of them are but most of them aren't so so all our hr managers out there and our corporations and business owners Give somebody a second chance. They will be so eternally grateful, and they will be your best employees ever if, if it's a good match between you and their company. And now, remember, on the it, other side... Mm -hmm. I was going to say, remember, it could be your family member. I mean, it could be your family member, yeah. It's so frustrating yeah. when you see a really good person that just it made, it made a bad mistake. It, you know, I call it ineffective behavior. Had some ineffective behavior... And, it, it, you know, they're 19, 20, 21 years old, and we're, we're limiting their potential for life. And I, 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 I've changed over the years. I have such a different feeling because I've been part of that system with the family, and it's, it's just so frustrating. So I'm so glad that what you're doing. Do you talk to the kids too, or the the? Uh, do you go into into jails or prisons and local? What do you, what are you doing now to to help out the folks that are in? It, it's certainly, and thank you for asking that particular question because you know back when it was April first, and I told the you know made up my mind that I was never ever ever going to go back to prison. Uh, now I go back all the time, and I talk to the inmates and I tell them, okay. You know, you can get your record sealed, expunged, or pardoned, and explain the difference to them. All right? There is a very subtle differences, and who you ask, 
and how you apply, it makes a big difference. And then I also uh, do a whole storytelling uh, series on how do you tell that story? How do you formulate the words of where you've been? Because it's not only about a potential employer that you have to tell that story to. It's what do you do to your future in-laws? And now at Christmas, you know, if you have a partner and they're inviting you to meet their family, do you tell them? How do you tell them? How much information do you give them? Mm. So there's all those kind of subtleties in storytelling. And I, I use the word storytelling instead of, you know, bearing your soul or, you know, telling them about your past. If you tell it to them in a story format, then it's a little easier to swallow. And, uh, you know, you can come out on the other side. Okay. Yeah, it, it is a challenge, though. Uh, like you said, because you start to date somebody and you need to let them know. Um, again, we're, we're not talking hardened criminal. We're talking someone that's made a mistake. And, right. and, and there's so many people, so many of us, um, I've been very fortunate, but you know, I've got family members who DUIs or something else has happened, and, and there's a record. Mm-hmm. And I, my husband just hired someone the other day that uh, his company hired someone that had a DUI, and right now they can't drive. Well, it's a construction mm-hmm. company, so you have to make right. allowances for if he needs to go somewhere, someone else has to drive them. So there are ways to do it. Um, right. I, I'm really curious, Cece, when, when you go back and, and talk to kids, this is kind of a note to my younger self type of a thing. What would you say to yourself, as you're looking at those young women and maybe seeing yourself there, what would you say to your younger self? Wow. I, I wish I had valued myself more. I wish I had known my, the power of my voice. You know, I, I talked to some of the people that were in my unit way back when, and they all tell me the same thing, that they knew I was going to be a leader. They, they could see me on stage way back then. I, I never could see that. I mm-hmm. never could see that at all, you know. I did not know that, um, you know, small things, and the mice and diamonds and small packages, right? I wish I had known that then because I would have used my dynamite and my diamonds to do other things. And how about I would, I would definitely totally easier path. How about surrounding yourself with different people? Could you have done yes. that? Or? I don't really think in in... I guess I could have. People I was I around were the people in the unit. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I could really change that, but I surely could have been friends with other people. So, yes, definitely I could have. But I, I just wish I had paid better attention to what was going on around me. I think that's the key because I'm thinking back on things that had happened and I'm thinking, wow, you know, those kids that so-and-so is hanging with, they're, they're from really good families. 
like you said, I'm from a good family. What do they do? From good families, and and some and good families have oops moments too. You know, where we're not paying attention or we're too busy in what's going on. And uh, I've been there, done that. You know, and and you can't beat yourself up over it, but it certainly has enlightened us. And every no one is is immune from what happened to you. No one is immune from what happened to me. Um, you know, fraud right now is just huge, and and people are thinking, well, I'm I'm never going to get taken. Well, guess what? Everybody gets taken by somebody in a lifetime. Yes. And mm -hmm. you ended mm -hmm. up in prison. I ended up with you know million dollar mistake. Um, we all have something that's going to happen to us, but we can turn what happened to us into good. And that's what I love what you're doing now. So tell people how they can get a hold of you and what, what are you, what are you doing now? I think a lot of it is storytelling, but tell us what you were doing and how folks can engage with you. All right. So on January 5th, we'll be having a storytelling class and then on, on how to deal with the imposter syndrome. I'm big on the imposter syndrome and how we can overcome that. The not posted yet, but it will be posted on Eventbrite. But if you want to reach me, you can reach me by email or on social media. Uh, my name, CC Espew, and Espew is E as in Edward, S as in Sam, P as in Peter, E as in Edward, you as in Utah, T as in Tom, dot cc at gmail.com. So find me on social media. I'm on all the platforms, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, or just email me. I'd be happy to talk to you and tell you more about my upcoming class in January. And I've taken your storytelling class, and it's fun. And, and you know, obviously I've done a lot of, of speaking also, but it's always good to hear different ways to to give give your information out. And we talk a lot about that with the survivors of, of relationship fraud, and, and when they start telling their story, we're like, you don't have to tell all of it. You don't have to give the specifics. <laughs> Right? You don't tell all of the story. You, like you said, you don't even remember much of it. Um, right. But there are some key so parts. I always, right. I always want to say, you know, when you're telling your story, you don't want people to go get popcorn. It's not a lifetime movie. All right? So you only, even though you may be speaking in public, your life is not public. And so, especially like when I say you're talking to your in-laws or your, your, your partners-to-be, you only give them what they need to know. You know, I, I was talking the other day and somebody asked me, when I was in solitary, when I was in solitary confinement, did I get a chance to shower? Like, really? Is that something that you really need to know? Of all the things that have gone on, you want to know how many times I got to take a shower while I was in solitary confinement? What does it matter? I'm yeah. by myself. You know, I, was, so. I was wondering what your favorite book was. Did you get to read? So, you know, now that's a really good question. So here's the thing. When you don't talk, 
when you don't use your voice, you start to lose it. Okay? But when you, um, so what I did, I figured out, I got the GED book, you know, the, the big GED book, because nobody would get in that, the prison library. And I got the Bible. And I do math problems. Every day I would work a section of the book just to keep my mind sharp because in solitary confinement, what else was I going to do? And then I got the Bible and I would read aloud. Now, if anybody's ever read, um, you know, anything in the Bible, especially once you get through Genesis, and it starts giving you all those names, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, that was really tough for me. But I would read it aloud to myself just so that I would have uh, I practice. Because if not, there was no need for me to ever say anything, and I was afraid of losing my voice. That's really interesting because I heard someone ask you one time, too, about how, how we can get books uh, into prisons and jails. And I found it, it, I was the same way when, when my son was there. I was like, I wanted to send him books. And they had to be brand new books. They could, I couldn't send him books from home. You know, it had right. to come directly from yeah. Amazon or directly from Barnes & Noble or something. Is there a way, I mean, we all have a lot of books. And many mm-hmm. places don't want them anymore. I would think that that would be a perfect place. Is there a way to get reading material into the prison libraries? Only like you said, uh, it has to come directly to the publisher or Amazon or they will not accept it. Because, and, and, you know, I don't want to give away any, anybody any ideas. The, I, you know, smuggling drugs into prison, if you send in a book, it's a very easy yeah, thing a big to deal. do. It's a big right, thing. so it's it's very easy to smuggle uh, drugs using books. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell anybody how to do it, but no. you know, that's that's one of the reasons why they won't accept from, uh, you know, from the public. Absolutely, but how about afterwards? Wouldn't it be interesting? Because you know there are these places where you can uh, you can donate your your business suits and and give women a second a second chance. Uh, I always thought that maybe a lending library or, you know, a, a, we talked about this on one of my shows where the gals had put a little uh, neighborhood library, a little little box up, and then shared books. Mm-hmm. Um, we had to put a box outside every every prison with some really great books and say, take a book on your way out. because. And, and you know, here's the thing. It's not only for the inmates. It's, it's their families. Absolutely. It's their families. I... I I recently met a woman, brilliant. I mean, she has she is so educated with all these degrees behind her name, and her husband ended up in prison. Yeah. And now she has the new title of the inmate's wife, and she does not know what to do. And yeah. so she really needs help. Um, and, of course, when you're in it, you can't figure out what to do. Yeah, she she needs help. It's really difficult being thrown into into the system like that as a family member because you feel treated like you committed the crime. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. talk, you know, I understand why why family members want to separate because it's embarrassing. You know, so and so did such and such. I'm like, 
Yeah, but everybody makes a mistake. Everybody has some ineffective behaviors, and we've got to be a little more forgiving of what mm-hmm. they did, and they still have, you know, the same heart. And if they were a good person that made a mistake, they're still that good person that made a mistake. Let's give them a second chance. And I love that you're doing that, speaking about second chances. I mean, our a CCR conversation could go on for a long time, but <laughs> what... I just love what you're doing, and I love you, and I, I just Thank you. it breaks my heart, you know, to see our our family members and our friends that one in three. There's someone out there that is being held back because of what happened, and they just want to move on. So, what are mm-hmm. what are a couple of tips for for moving forward? What do you tell them? What is, how can they move forward? Yeah. You know what? I tell them really, focus on yourself. Focus on uh, what you want, your goals, and then move towards it. There's nothing that you can do to make someone love you. All right? So if you make a mistake, you do try to make amends. But the other person is not ready for your apology. Move on. You know, do, do whatever you need to do to start making your life right. So back to school, recreate your life. And hopefully, eventually, those family members will come around. But, you know, you, you do have to move on. Well, you love happily ever after stories, Cece. So what is your happily ever after? What is my happily ever after? I don't know. It's a work in progress right now. But I will tell you, I am enjoying life. I'm having so much fun, meeting so many new people, taking advantage of all the opportunities that come my way. Yeah, that's 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 what I'm doing right now. Just having fun. There you go, and and you deserve it. And you've got grandchildren that that love your stories. I'm sure. So if people want to reach you, they can reach you at cc and at c e c e at cctheephotographer.com and how else on on social media Facebook LinkedIn under CCSPU ESPEUT and yes. not your phone number is on my site here but we'll we'll get put that information out CC and you've got your storytelling coming out you've got an imposter syndrome class coming up People will follow you. I want them to understand, you know, what you're doing with, you're working a lot with Broward County court system, aren't you? Oh, yes, yes. I'm, I'm you know, a lot of uh, agencies have me coming in right now and just showing them that, hey, if you give somebody a second chance, you're actually saving families. You know, um, there's so much that can be done. Uh, give somebody... A second chance, you know, and if that's one thing, and that's my that's my Christmas wish for everybody, just give somebody a second chance and, and just let them show you what they can do. There you go. Yeah. Thank you so much because we all need a second chance at some point in our lives, each one of us, no matter what. And it's just, it's nice to know that there's someone out there that can hold your hand and help you move forward. So let's be that yeah. person, especially during the season, to be that that hug, that handhold, um, a set of extra set of ears, 
and just listen. And and mm-hmm. Cece, thank you so much for being my guest. I'm so grateful that you ha- you got your voice and uh, that you had your voice and that you listened to your voice. And we know the power of your voice and of storytelling and giving a second chance. So thank you, my friend. I really appreciate you being here today. All right, and thank you for having me. This was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and being your best self. If you've been a victim of a scam or cybercrime, please visit againstscams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. SCARS, the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, is an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, please make a small donation to help the victims around the world receive the help that they need. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in their hands and feet, check out our benfotaming products at BenfoComplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for 5% discount on your purchase. Again, thanks everybody for being here with us today. Go to my website, thewomanbehindthesmile.com, for additional information and resources. Check out my YouTube channel and subscribe, and follow the replays of all of our great guests. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks very much for being here.